Hello and welcome to the Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and our special guest today is Mr. Bob Knox. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. So am I. You know, Bob, you're a man of many hats. You're a composer, you're a piano tuner, I believe you fix pianos, you're a former teacher. We'll get to all that, but I'd like to start with composing, if you don't mind. Please tell our listeners, what exactly is composing? Uh, that's, uh, that's quite a wide uh, question. I'll try to, try to get to the nitty-gritty. I, I liken it to a person that's about ready to, to write a novel. You know, it's writing music, writing books, writing novels. It's a very similar process, very artistic. But uh, like a person that's going to write a novel, many times they might start with a single idea. They might have a character in mind. They might have a basic idea of the plot. But they don't have all the answers. And that's part of the creative process as you work through it. And uh, composing music is very similar in the early stages. At least it is to me. But I think uh, at some point... Even though you might have some ideas, some what we call motives, uh, motivic development in music, you might have some small ideas of things. At some point, you have to step back and take a much bigger view and say, you know, what am I going to do with these ideas? Uh, how am I going to make sense of them all and communicate that to an audience? And it, it involves kind of taking the audience on a journey, if you will. And that kind of requires someone to step back and take a larger picture, what I call the macro view, of what, how you're going to take this audience on a journey, where you're going to take them, and that'll tend to give you kind of some road signs, if you will, as, as to what you're going to do when. You know, in terms of your personal compositions, is it considered classical music? Is it big band music? I know it's orchestral, but what do you consider it? The quick answer is I tend to write for concert bands. So it's, it's your traditional band that you've heard uh, in a high school, in a college. I've done some things with orchestras, but uh, I tend to focus in on concert band. And that's, that's kind of my background, how I kind of got started with this. Concert band. Well, what is exactly the, the format for creating this form of music? Do you use computer programs? Do you, do you have a band to, to work with that actually will play the stuff that you're writing? Well, I would say yes uh, to both of those. So I would say I've had access to bands in the past. I mean, I'm, I'm recently retired, but I spent 37 years as a music educator in the public schools. I've worked with high school bands over those years. And at one point uh, in my compositional creativeness, I actually had that a band that I could put music in front of them, try out some ideas, and so that's that's really uh, valuable as a teacher. How do you do it now, now that you're retired? Well, along the way, there's been a lot of developments with notation programs. And I've used, uh, you know, the, the, three, the three main notation programs over the years have been Finale, Sibelius, there's been others. I mentioned three because there's kind of a new kid on the block called Dorico. And I've been using that. Uh, it's a, just a fabulous program. And the development team that used to be with Sibelius is now at Dorico. Steinberg is the, the parent company that owns them, which is ultimately owned by Yamaha. But uh, Dorico is a great tool, and I, I've been using that. You know, for some of our non-technical listeners, I'd love to show them a piece of what you're talking about. Uh, would you mind if we, we played a little bit of your work? 
Uh, sure. So the the latest piece I've uh, composed, it's called Sparrow. And um, we can get into kind of the process of how I came up with the idea and how I developed it in t- into the piece that it is. Yeah, if you'd like to hear, uh, maybe a good starting point is the, the intro. And I have a little story about that uh, after, we, after we listen to it. I'd love to hear it. Let's play it. wonderful. Please explain how you came up with that and and what is your process for writing as well? Well, uh, in this specific instance, what you heard was just a very, very slow, gradual process, which which I call the intro. Interestingly enough, I had played the piece that did not include this music. It, It started later in the piece, and that was my original introduction, if that makes sense, to a friend of mine. And you know him very well, actually. He's related to you. Is that right? Yes. Would this be my brother, Bob? It is. Okay. It, it, it is definitely him. We had him on the show. Yeah. A couple weeks ago. So anyway, I, I played the what was my original beginning introduction uh, of this piece, Sparrow. You know, he listened to it. I, I value his opinion. And he said, it sounds great. But he had kind of a tr- trouble with the way it started. And we're going to hear that a little bit later on, the original starting of the piece. It's sort of like I didn't mince words the first uh, time I composed this. I just got right into a theme and got right into the piece. And it was a very, very quick-paced thematic material. And why is that a problem? Not necessarily a problem. It's originally what I had envisioned as how I was going to start the piece, you know. Just something must have changed your mind along the way. What was that? Having your brother mention, like, he wasn't sure. It's almost like I just started without a start. It just. You should have talked to me first, Bob. I could have told you that my brother doesn't know a lot about music. <laughs> well, you know, some of the. Some of the beautiful aspects. He ruined your piece. Yes. Well, some of the beautiful aspects about this whole process is is there there are no right and wrong answers. But it, it, it here's what it did. It, it got me thinking. And I, I started to think about the idea that maybe there is a better approach. And so I tried some different ideas and, and the first couple of them failed. But I eventually came up with one that I that I really liked and I thought it made the piece stronger. And uh, if you'd like, let's listen to uh, a little bit of what was my original starting point of this piece. It's a great idea. Let's hear it. I see the difference now. I get it. Uh, you know, one, one like you say, you just got right to it. And in the other piece, it was a little bit more elaborate coming in. 
you know, how do you make those changes? Again, it gets back to what I originally talked about is I, I think in the composing process, you, you have to get ideas at the what I call the micro level. You, you get little what, what we call motifs in music where you, you come up with little ideas. You find a way to develop those ideas into melodies and larger structures. And out of that, you come up with even larger sections and structures. And the idea being is that you are taking the audience on a journey and you need to connect all these disparate uh, disparate um, ideas together at some point. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to connect them. And so you're thinking along the lines of, a, of larger structures. And so if you notice, there's a huge contrast between what my original introduction material was, which is we just listened to. It's a flurry of activity compared to what I ultimately ended up, which was what we heard first with the introduction. You can hear just huge contrast there. Are you at all interested in what the listener is going to react to, or is it just based on what you like to hear? That's a great question, Rick. I think what I do is I have a comfort zone. I know what tricks and tools I can bring to the table. And then I decide what's what's interesting to me because I feel like it's gonna if it's interesting and sounds good to me, it's gonna sound good to them. I, I mm-hmm. truly believe that. And I've had a lot of great influences over the years. And if we go back in time just a little bit to when I was way back in time when I was in high school, I, I started noticing being in band, I started really noticing some of the pieces where we were playing, pieces by Alfred Reed. Frank T. Kelly, John Barnes Chance, some really great pieces for concert band. I started paying attention to those sounds and thinking to myself, how are these sounds made? How did the composer come up with these ideas? Can I emulate that a little bit? You know, there's obviously a lot that goes into it when you explain it that way. I understand how complicated it can be. I'm a songwriter, so it's very simple for me. I hear a melody in my head, or I play around with a few chords. I get a nice chord progression in play, and melodies start to come to me, and then I pare it down to the, the ones that I think are going to work the best for the progression. Do you hear stuff in your head? Do you, are you walking down the street or driving to the store or whatever, and you hear these melodies, and, oh, man, i got to go home and put this down. I mean, how does it, how does it work for you? What, what's yes. the inception of these well, pieces? Yeah, I, I do hear little ideas sometimes. Sometimes I'm driving in the car. And, you know, we, we've got great technologies these days. We can, we can pick up our phone, hopefully not while driving, but record little audio, little, I can sing out little ideas that I have in my head. Um, and I do a lot of it, uh, actually, at the piano, where I can hear, you know, multiple notes at once. That's one of the beauties of uh, an instrument like piano or guitar. I know you're a clarinet player. How does that inform your music? And do you ever, you know, play around with the clarinet and come up with a theme that you like? Well, yes. In fact, uh, you may have noticed that what ended up being what I call the first main exposition, and that sounds kind of wordy, but it's the first main idea. And exposition is just taking the idea and and playing around with it, exposing it to the audience. Mm-hmm. You, you may have heard that, that it was strictly clarinet. So I, I think, uh, you know, I try to give interesting parts to all the members of the band, but I am partial to clarinet because I think clarinet is one of the best instruments. It's, it's certainly one of my favorites. It's... Uh, 
you know, I, I'm a little partial because I am a clarinetist, but I, I do try to uh, to write really well crafted parts for everybody. But uh, if you notice, it's it's pure clarinet. That's a decision I made. I thought it was kind of getting into the idea. I was trying to get a a sparrow like quality. I mean, the, the name the name of the song is Sparrow. I guess it's it has bird like elements in it. What do you call them? Songs, pieces, compositions. How do you refer to them usually? Well, this is just a work for concert band. So again, I, I just come up with some ideas. We, we, we tend to call those smaller ideas motives or moti- motivi- motifs. motifs, exactly, and then build upon that. And again, I kind of play around at the piano or, or the clarinet or whatever and get ideas and start to put them into that larger structure that I spoke of earlier. You, you kind of have to come up with a game plan, if you will. So that's that's kind of the process. Yeah. I love these pieces. You know, I love classical music. I love orchestral stuff. One of my favorite pieces of all time is George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with that sweeping clarinet intro. You must love that. Oh, yes. I mean, it just something like that is composed and performed and immediately it becomes kind of a, a, a signature, a special piece. As an audience member hearing it, if you're hearing it for the first time, you're just amazed at what you hear. Do you like the modernists better? Do you, you lean more toward them or the classics? Uh, who are some of your favorite composers? That's an interesting question. I, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I, I certainly, you know, we can go way back in time to uh, like Beethoven, Mozart. You know, I, obviously, I, you know, I'm not comparing myself to any of those greats, but Obviously, one has to start somewhere in terms of, of getting ideas of what they like, uh, what they find interesting. I mean, you know, how can you not find a Beethoven or, or a Mozart uh, interesting? But I, I also really liked some of the newer sounds that came out uh, at turn of the century. Uh, sounds like Debussy, Stravinsky, things were really I call it bending the rules. They took traditional harmonies. With Debussy, he was a great proponent of using the whole tone scale. And if, if anyone out there doesn't really know what, what a whole tone scale is, I encourage you to, uh, you know how great the internet is, is Google it. Uh, you're going to hear examples of it. It's going to be explained to you. Uh, it's just a, a whole new sound. It's a great idea. Uh, it's one nice thing about the internet is it exposes people to a wide range of music that you'd have to hunt for very, very hard. Like when I was a kid looking for music to challenge my ear. Uh, you mentioned WC and Stravinsky. Those are, I consider them relatively modern composers within the last 100 years, 110 years, something like that. What about guys like Aaron Copland, even more modern guys like that? Well, yeah. Now, Aaron Copland, even though you know he was, he was after, let's say, WC, um, considered modern, more modern for that reason chronologically, I think Aaron Copland had kind of more classical, traditional roots. I mean, his... His music is very accepting to, to a lot of people. Um, accessible. A, accessible. There's there's the word I was thinking of. And he just had this open structure to a lot of his music. He, he wasn't trying to just play, uh, compose traditional music, but kind of open it up. And that's why a, a lot of his pieces, um, 
had to do like uh, Appalachian Spring and Billy the Kid. It, it had to do with like the wide open spaces of the United States, and the as as our country developed and expanded, it had a lot to do with that. And his his music has that open, never ending quality. It's amazing how diverse these composers are. And part of orchestral music that I like is it's very expressive. It's fun to listen to because I always try to imagine what is inside the musical mind of these composers. There's so much detail and color. Uh, in fact, that being said, I wouldn't mind hearing another one of your pieces right now, yeah, Bob. Yeah, so, so we've heard uh, the first selection was the, the intro, and it's, it still is the intro. The second one we heard, we kind of skipped ahead in time. So after that uh, intro, uh, which, which kind of just sounds like a calm uh, morning, if you will, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to get the audience to see the distinct things I see when I hear the piece, but uh, just kind of lead them in that direction because it's really it's really their call at that point. But after the intro, I, I felt it's important to give the audience something they can latch on to by giving them small little melodies and, and motives. So th- this, uh, this next section uh, follows the introduction and really gives them something to bite into. I'm starting to give some... Uh, thematic development and some some motivic uh, development. Great, let's take a listen. So I think you can hear there's material, I call it, you know, there, there's something that people can kind of uh, bite into or hold on to. I, you can hear those motives uh, being thrown around amongst different sections of the band. And so we've gone from that calm beginning to something's happening. I understand. We've got a lot of ground to cover here, Bob. Uh, I'd like to move on to a couple other topics, if you don't mind. But before we do that... I want to pick your brain about something, something I was curious about, something that I heard not too long ago about Goebbels, the famous Nazi, the evil Nazi Goebbels. Uh, When Hitler took over most of Europe, he put Goebbels in charge of the classical programs across all the countries in Europe. And he changed 440, which is today's standard tuning. Well, he changed it to 440 from 434, which I guess is what Mozart wrote in. And when he did that, it just kind of became the way people tune their instruments at that point. And some people, the diehards, the people that really hate those Nazis, we all hate those Nazis. (laughs) But, you know, this time 440 sounds good to my ear because that's what I'm used to. But some people refuse to play in 440 because Goebbels insisted on 440. He he changed the whole system. People don't want to work by that system. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, yeah. I mean, the the history behind all this is different parts of the world had a different standard for A4. Now, A4 is a pitch that's the A above middle C, if you know middle C on a piano. Mm -hmm. Today's international standard is 440. And it, I didn't know the, the background uh, story of this. That's interesting to hear. Prior to it becoming an international standard, we had different variations of that. We had A435. We had anything um, between that and A440. I mean, to this day, the international standard is 440. And that's what the orchestras around the world tune to because the, the instruments are made to um, produce sounds at that, at that frequency level. And... Uh, uh, there's slight variations. I know some orchestras like to tune slightly sharper, a little higher, 
at A442 and some tune to slightly lower. But by and large, we've kind of just as as a world, I guess, with with a few naysayers and, and people that want to go their own way, we've kind of settled in on A440. Uh, does it make a difference? Um, it, it definitely does sound different. If you've heard, uh, and, and you guys can uh, research this on the internet, um, there are some people, like you say, that, that are, are sticking to their guns and they, they, like, they like that pitch to be a little bit lower. Um, to me, it just sounds wrong. I guess we all get accustomed to hearing A440 uh, that's what we hear all the time anyway. So recording studios around the world and orchestras and bands, we're, we're all at A440. So if we occasionally hear it at a lower pitch, it, it sounds a little off. 434 always sounded a little strange to me. My ear is happy with 440, but I give Goebbels no credit for that. So, And, and you know the whole, the 440, what that really means is is cycles per second yes. or, or hertz. Uh, so it's it's the A above middle C vibrates at 440 times a second and you know it's it's amazing for people that don't know some of the the theory behind and the physics behind musical sounds is you know there's a wide range from like 16 hertz which is the very very low notes of an organ up to like the the piccolo range and beyond which is is going into the thousands of hertz you know you're a a piano tuner too bob moving on i want to discuss that because I didn't know how much there was to piano tuning. I just figured you go tune a piano like like you would give a car a tune-up or something. But there's a lot to this, isn't there? It's, it's really kind of a lost art almost. Yes, it's it, it's a very strange uh, proposition uh, to tune a piano because we basically, to, to make a piano in tune, we actually have to make it out of tune. And that's, that's kind of a shocking and weird statement to say because of the piano strings being made of hardened steel, cold drawn steel, it it affects the string's ability to vibrate harmonically. And what I mean by that is the the overtones uh, in a piano string, they're not capable of being mathematically perfect. And what that means is compared to like a cello string or a guitar string, those strings can vibrate with perfect overtones. And overtones are just partials of the string that are vibrating. So not, not just the fundamental string. If you imagine a clothesline whipping up and down, that's the fundamental. But a string also vibrates in all kinds of partitions or partials at the same time. So you have the half half the length of the string is vibrating. That would be an octave higher. A, a third, it vibrates in thirds, and that would be an octave and a fifth higher, and so forth. And it goes on in infinity. So because a piano string is such high-strength steel, it can't really vibrate correctly according to the math. And so we have to we have to kind of take little liberties and licenses when we tune a piano to make it sound right. Fascinating. You are a piano fixer or repairer too, right? Well, it kind of goes with the territory. I remember when I first started this business back in uh, 1982, I, I felt like, boy, I'm going to be learning this trade on and on. It's like like a lot of things in life, you never stop learning. And you talk to other tuners and get more information. But uh, part of the parts that scared me early on was the repair part of it. Because first of all, if something isn't working right, uh, sometimes it's obvious. Uh, but sometimes, many times it's not. And so you have to be 
kind of a detective. And that's where experience really comes into play. But when you're first starting early on in your career, you don't have that experience. You do this a lot. You tune a lot of pianos. I imagine you've seen plenty of wonderful pianos as well as, you know, some pretty bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we, you know, and uh, I mean, you, you try to be honest with the customer. If if you come across a situation where the piano is just a wreck, and you know, you kind of find out where they are. I mean, if it's something where I can get it sounding better for them, and um, you know, I'm capable of of making a difference with that piano, and 99 times out of 100 I can, then I'll do that, and I'll advise them on on issues the piano has. But very rarely there are times where. I may have to turn down a tuning job just because, not that I don't want the money, of course, but it would be wasted money. I mean, if the piano's incapable of holding the pitch and cannot be corrected or too costly to correct, then, you know, I'll advise the piano uh, customer of that. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about your teaching, Bob. Uh, You're recently retired, but you were a teacher for how many years? Well, 37 years total. I'm from Michigan originally. I grew up in Michigan, went to University of Michigan for my bachelor's degree in music education. Um, I taught two years in Michigan, and then I was out of teaching for a couple of years. I did a variety of jobs. And of course, at this point, my, my mother thought, oh, geez, all those expensive college bills, you know, down the drain. But I reassured her that um, I was just looking for what I considered a step up as far as my career in teaching. And so I kind of had my feelers out all over the place. And one of the places that I found was right here in the in the beautiful Hudson Valley. Hyde Park, New York. In, in Hyde Park, New York. I came out here for an interview in uh, 1983. It was kind of a two-way love affair. I mean, I fell in love with the Hudson Valley, and they must have liked me because I got hired. Here I am. I, I moved out here, left my family behind. Uh, I, I figured if it didn't work out, I could always go back there. It wasn't the easiest thing to do, but... It was just a a great, it's been a great experience being in Hyde Park for the last 35 years. You know, you've influenced a lot of young minds, I'm sure. And I want to speak about that for a second. You know, young people listen to music very differently than people say our age did when they were growing up or or probably even now. Sometimes I don't even understand some of their devices and and some uh, some of the ways that they listen and they listen to singles instead of albums a lot of the time. I'm going to have a a young musician on my show next week. I'll ask her about that. But you saw a lot of young people. Any comments about the differences between how young people listen to music today and how we did? Well, I guess my comment would be is I I think adults tend to look at kids. uh, I'll say kids. Now, I've taught many ages over, over the years, fourth and fifth graders, all the way up to to high school kids. We tend to look at that population and think that they're very narrowly focused. They, They listen to their generation music at the expense of everything else but it's not that way at all they they're interested in all types of music most kids if they don't think it's cool to admit it you can still see it in their eyes so (laughs) i think part of my job as a teacher over the years is to expose them to different types of music and obviously the kids that were in the band program of which i was one of their directors they would be exposed to that uh, literature
literature, the, the band concert band literature. And that's what's great about music teachers. Uh, we have a shortage of great music teachers. You are a great music teacher, and I could listen to you talk about music all day. We could have five of these shows in a row, and it probably wouldn't be enough. Which reminds me, we're running out of time, which I, I can't stand when that happens. But before we go, I would love it if we could listen to another piece of yours. Well, yes, um, there's actually, I'll just make this real quick then. There, there's a device in music called a bridge and it's basically like a bridge. It, it takes you from one point to another. Now, um, relate this to uh, video editing and making movies. And I know you know about this, Rick, is sometimes a director will just decide they want to just go to a quick cut. Just the, the new scene just happens immediately. There's no in-between. It just goes there. And you can do that in music. But another device in music is to go to a new place but connect it somehow. And that's what a bridge is used for. And we can listen to the bridge right now. It's basically connecting that first statement of motifs to what I call the first main exposition, which is the uh, some new material. And so how do we connect it? This is what I did. Let's listen. I get it. I get it. I, you know, this is an education for me and hopefully for some of our listeners as well. Yeah, so a lot of times with the bridge, uh, it's just completely new material. The audience is, is taken aback a little bit. They're saying, hey, something's happening here. And indeed. So how do you wrap up a piece like this? Well, um, I, I still like to keep that interest uh, going with the audience. So um, I, I employed a technique. I, I call it the fake ending. So it, it uses material that the audience has already heard, which is, I think, important for an audience to feel comfortable. They like to, to go. We as human beings, we're creatures of habit. We like to hear previous material again. And so I state that, and it's, it's stated in a way that sounds like, that's the ending. Can we hear the ending? But it's not the ending. It's a fake ending. And so why don't we listen to that right now? I'd love it. Yeah, so it's kind of a fun little thing. It's a fun little trick we can sometimes do. Uh, you know, you trick the audience, but hopefully they have a smile on their face. Uh, you don't want to do anything too bad to the audience. You don't want to, like, turn them off. But hopefully you can hear it. It's kind of like a fake ending and then a little extension with some new material. And then the final ending, like, this is the real deal. And that's what makes it fun. Bob, this whole thing was a lot of fun. 
I just wish it were longer. It went by really, really fast. But it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for doing it. Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, It's been a pleasure as well for me to be on the show and love to do it again sometime. I was just going to say, please come back sometime. We'll have you back and we'll discuss more of this because I love it. Thanks. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and I hope you come back next week for a whole new show. Today's show and all of these shows produced and edited by Rusty Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.